This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Psalm 12. We'll be reading the entire psalm. It is eight verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that It would be true of us what is said in it, that we, your people, would be placed into the safety for which we long, that by your Son, Jesus Christ, we would be delivered and preserved and kept until the last day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you feel safe? We live in a world that is increasingly dangerous and chaotic and unstable. While most of us, for most of our lives, have had the privilege of living in a relatively safe and prosperous country, in more recent years it seems that in many ways the cracks are starting to show. We've seen new forms of difficulty and of unrest and wickedness breaking out in the world around us. You just look at these last few years and we've seen a lot of unprecedented, strange, and difficult and scary things. You can think back to the COVID pandemic and all the societal disruption that it caused, all the fear and division that it sowed, all the uh, ways that even the church was attacked, churches were forced closed, and all the difficulties that that brought. Or around that same time, we saw race riots of the sort that we've not seen in our nation in decades. We've seen greater acceleration of wickedness and godliness in the sexual revolution. We see transgenderism has now broken out into mainstream culture and it is demanded that it not only be accepted but celebrated and even taught to young children. We see acts of violence against Christians. Meanwhile, attempts are made to suppress Christianity and keep it out of any and all of public life. And those who are supposed to tell us the truth about these things, those who are supposed to report on them so that we may know, 
they often lie to us because they have their own agendas they want to uphold. We are told implicitly or explicitly that Christians are bad, Christians are evil, and they need to just go away. If these aren't enough examples of how the world is perhaps less safe, you could just look outside and see all this ominous smoke drifting around in the air, and it tells us that somewhere something very big and dangerous and out of control is happening. There are plenty of reasons why we might not feel safe. There are plenty of reasons that if we sought to, we could be afraid. There are plenty of lies and plenty of liars around. Where can hope be found? Where can we turn? Psalm 12 is a very timely psalm for our day. In it, we see David he is the author of this psalm. He is in a crisis. He is beset by lies and fear. What does he do? Where does he turn in a time that may feel familiar to us as we look at the world around us? But we see in this text tonight that safety, true safety, is only found in the hope and trust and certainty of God's deliverance. We're going to deal with this psalm tonight in four points. Verses 1 and 2 are a diagnosis. What is going on that has David so troubled? And then verses 3 and 4 are a demand. How does David want the Lord to respond to this? Verse 5 shows us deliverance. What does God do about this situation? And then verses 6 through 8 are a doxology. They are praise to God for his enduring faithfulness. So again, we have a diagnosis, demand, deliverance, and doxology. First, we see David's diagnosis in verses 1 and 2. So in the beginning of this psalm, we see David pouring out his heart to God. We see lament. We see pain. He sees this wickedness, this lying, this slander around him, and he is at the point of losing hope. Look at verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of man. Have you ever felt that way? Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you feel like you're trying to do what is right, you're trying to do what God requires of you, but you're all alone in doing it? Do you ever feel like wickedness is getting worse, that it's more intense than it's ever been? Perhaps you can relate to what David describes in verse 1. He writes of the disappearance of the godly, they have ceased. It's not as though evil is just there and it's always been there and it's holding steady at the same level. It's getting worse. There's intensification. The godly were here. The faithful were here. But now they're gone. And we don't know exactly when and why in his life David wrote Psalm 12. We could look at David's life and we could see plenty of situations that would fit. Times where David was lied to, times where he was betrayed, times where he was alone, times where he may have had good reason to be afraid. Though David was a faithful servant of King Saul, he frequently had to run for his life and hide because Saul wanted to kill him. When Saul died, despite the fact that David had been anointed to be king, 
had been given that by God, a rival king, Ishbosheth, was raised up, and a great crisis ensued before David could finally take the throne. And later on in his life, even David's own son, Absalom, would betray and try to overthrow him. So David knew a thing or two about getting stabbed in the back, about betrayal, about abandonment, about how those who once seemed godly and reliable could cease. In verse 2, we get a little more detail as to the specific nature of David's concerns. We get three attributes of the wicked that David has observed. First, they speak worthless and empty words. In our text, it says they speak idly. They speak what is useless, what is dishonest, what is unhelpful. And second, David complains that they have flattering lips. This word translated here as flattering can also mean smooth. You've maybe heard of someone referred to as a smooth talker. It's usually not a compliment. It's someone who says what they need to say to get what they want, whether they're actually telling the truth or not. Smooth talkers, they're boastful. They seek to make themselves great while making others small. And third, the wicked have double hearts. They're treasonous. They're disloyal. They're untrustworthy. These are the sort of people that are only interested in their own gain. They would sell anyone else for a song. They might shake your right hand while stabbing you in the back with their left. Note how David uses this severe and absolute language. The faithful have vanished. There's none left. Each and every person is one of these liars, one of these boasters, one of these smooth talkers. And so David is, on top of these other things, feeling this crushing isolation and loneliness as he struggles for righteousness against evil. And in his desperation and in his pain... We now see the second component of his prayer, David's demand, verses 3 and 4. David says in no uncertain terms what he wants to see happen to these liars and smooth talkers. David calls on the name of the Lord and he prays for his enemy's destruction. He prays for the cutting off of the flattering lips and the boastful tongue. It is a graphic and violent image. If someone has neither lips nor tongue, they will be silent. They will also be mutilated, potentially even dead. David expresses his desire that those who are using their words to commit these evils be silenced forever. He demands an end to their pride and arrogance, for they have been boasting even about their ability to boast, their ability to lie and to manipulate others. Now, this language of cutting off, it's often employed in other places of Scripture to describe removal from the covenant people, a permanent casting away, a permanent separation from God and from life and from hope. It is a cutting off unto destruction. We saw this language not that long ago when we looked at Genesis 17. It described what would happen to those who did not observe the covenant sign of circumcision. They were to be cut off. So when David says he wants them to be cut off, he wants them to be permanently and eternally silenced. And we don't usually pray like David prays here. And why is that? 
Well, there could be various reasons. Generally in our day, Christians and Christianity thinks that it needs to be positive, that it needs to be nice, it needs to be winsome, and that may contribute something to our discomfort. But I think there's more to it than that. We're uncomfortable with praying this way because we know that at various times we can fit just as well as the object of this prayer as the subject. In other words, there's times when we're not the righteous man asking for God to pour out his judgment. We can be the boastful, lying, and arrogant people that are deserving of such judgments. So we all know that we lie. We all know that we gossip. We all know that we manipulate people. So if we pray what David prays here in verses 3 and 4, we're hypocrites. We're praying down judgment on ourselves because we know what God requires of us in terms of how we are to speak and how we are to act, and we routinely fall short. Many times we're not just passive victims of the evil out there. We actively do evil. We hold it in our hearts. We, like them, deserve to be cut off not only from the ability to speak, but from God's covenants, from life itself. And so we are at this crossroads. On one hand, we know that David is right. It is a true and proper thing that he is asking of the Lord, that the wicked would be judged. But we also know that we are often guilty of the very same things. We should be people of the truth, but we often speak lies and slander and compromise. And for that, we are all deserving of God's wrath. Another psalm, Psalm 5 in verses 4 through 6, tells us just how deserving of that we are. There it says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So what are we to do? We know God's righteous demands. We know that we deserve God's wrath. We, in fact, increase our debt under God's law every day. So we need answers. Well, thus far, we have seen in Psalm 12 the diagnosis, the lying, the false words, the smooth talking. And then we have seen the demand that such a thing demands God's wrath and judgment. And yet we ourselves are not worthy of escaping this wrath. Well, it's here now that we turn to our third point of Psalm 12, deliverance. In verse 5, we have the first time in this psalm that God himself directly speaks in the first person. David has called out to God in his desperation, and God has heard him, and God responds. What we first see is God's concern for justice for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. So God sees the oppression and the violence and the fraud that these smooth talkers have brought to pass. He is not indifferent. He is not a God of deism, a distant, passive God who created the world and left it to its own. He's not the gods of the pagans who are plunderers and smooth talkers in their own rights. No, our God sees and knows human suffering. He recognizes the plight of the poor and the needy, those who have done, been done wrong by other people's sin. 
Now we must qualify here. This is not a social gospel. Many people, they will see any verse that talks about the poor and the needy, and they see that as a mandate to turn the church into a charity or an activist group. What this verse does show us is that God is concerned with the poor and needy, and he is concerned with justice in the face of evil. And so should we within our spheres of influence. But most importantly, God sees us, his people, in our pain and sorrow, when we are afflicted, when we are poor, when we are needy, when we are oppressed. And in the next line, God takes action. Now I will arise, says the Lord. This is the climax of this psalm. The Lord in his glory, not only hears what David has brought to him, he responds with action. What is that action? I will place him, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. So what are we to make of this? David has called out the evildoers and he has asked God to destroy them. But we don't get in God's answer that judgment and devastation, at least not right away. But what we do see is this language of God's people being placed into safety. But who is the one who is placed into this safety? Danger is all around, and we ourselves are in various times in various ways because of sin in danger, and sometimes even a source of that danger. So what do you mean, safety? And how does this help us to deal with the problem of the psalm where we're calling for the cutting off of those who do a lot of the same things we do? Well, the truth is we need a salvation greater than deliverance from earthly lies and earthly fears and earthly trials. Because of our unrighteousness, we need a righteousness of another in our place. And to accomplish this for us, God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, entered into this fallen and sinful creation. Among the liars, among the flatterers, the oppressors, the boastful. Jesus was the only man who ever lived who could have prayed this prayer of David without the dissonance of knowing that he was guilty of the very same thing he accused others of. We read in 1 Peter 2, and 23, which is itself quoting from Isaiah 53, Peter describing Jesus says, "...who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return." When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, Jesus was often lied to and lied about. He was slandered, and he would have known all of it. He witnessed injustice, and he was a victim of injustice. We've been going through John. We've been seeing it. How often did the Pharisees accuse Jesus of having a demon or breaking the law or blaspheming God? even though he was innocent, and in fact, he was God. He had it worse even than David. See, David suffered at least somewhat for his own sin. Yet Christ suffered as one completely innocent. But Jesus did not return evil for evil. He lived a perfect sinless life, 
fulfilling all righteousness. And then those same lying people brought him up on false charges. At his trial, he could have argued for his own innocence, but he said very little. As he was tried one by one, his disciples and his friends, they fell away and they disappeared. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. When he was crucified, he could have saved himself even then, even at the end. As the mockers said, he could have called down legions of angels to destroy those who crucified and mocked him. He could have come down off that cross. Instead, he suffered, bearing the wrath of God that we were due. He cried out on behalf of those who crucified him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He finished the work he came to do. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. But then when Jesus had fulfilled all righteousness, that active obedience, that keeping the law on our behalf, and the passive obedience, paying the penalty we owed for our sins on the third day, Echoing Psalm 12, the Lord who said to David that he would arise, did arise from death. Because Christ arose, we can, through this gospel, be the person of the second half of verse 5, placed into the safety for which we long. David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, arose to put his people into safety. David never saw the full realization of this hope during his life. You read about David's life to its very end. It was plagued by opposition and trials, even problems that came as a result of David's sin. And yet David had this hope that God would arise to set things right. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God does arise and set us right, taking away our sin and making us new. We are delivered from the penalty of our sin, even these lying and smooth-talking sins that this psalm condemns. And furthermore, we know that God will execute justice, if not now, then in the age to come. And so we can pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done, that his enemies and those who opposed him might repent, but also knowing that those who persist in their evil will ultimately be destroyed. Those who lie and slander and persist in unrepentance, will receive a just judgment for their sin. So, David's hope of deliverance is our hope of salvation. And this salvation provokes a response of confidence, of assurance, of praise, which is our final point this evening, a doxology. This great deliverance of the Lord produces this response of praise and gratitude. Look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. David here could find no fault with the words of the Lord. They are perfect, they are true, they are upright, and they are just. When raw silver ore is mined, it includes impurities. It has dirt in it. It has other rocks and minerals. It has to be heated up and melted down so that the impurities can be drawn out of it. And here David says this is done seven times, the full number of times. 
The words of the Lord are not just pure. They are completely pure. They are even excessively pure. All impurity is absent from them. They are not only total purity, but the absence of all impurity. They are faithful. They are true. In the face of liars and lies, God's words are absolutely trustworthy. And David believes it's true all that God has said. We too, as Christians, should believe as true all that God has said. We should be confident that God's promises to us in Christ will come to pass. That when God promises to us deliverance and safety, these aren't just empty words. Yes, difficulty and trial may still reign in this life. You see that in verse 8. The very last verse of this psalm still talks about the wicked prowling, vileness exalted. That's all still there. That's all still around. But we have the hope, we have the assurance of a heavenly home. We can say with David that God will keep us and guard us from this generation, from all the powers and forces of evil that seek our demise and the demise of Christ's church. God will keep us from them forever. While they may afflict us now in this age on this earth, we have Christ in us and we have the hope of glory. We know that because Christ suffered, he is not indifferent to our suffering. We know that these momentary and light afflictions prepare us for eternal glory. We know that even as the wicked remain and evil is praised and the good is rejected and marginalized, our God is with us and ultimately he will deliver us. We know a day is coming when that evil will be no more. But what this means for us in this age is that we desire to bring this gospel, wit this gospel witness even to this wicked and perverse generation that lies and flatters and despises the things of God so that he might change their hearts, that he might make them new and give them new life. We love God and love our neighbor even if the world doesn't care or even if the world hates us for it. We seek to be salt and light in this world so that others will love as they should. We hope and pray and have confidence that all of those that God has chosen from the foundation of the earth in Christ will be brought in and placed into the safety that they long for and guarded from this generation forever. Now we are told a lot in our day about safety. What we must do, where we must live, what policies we must support, Whatever other things we must do to be safe. If you just eat this diet, get all your shots, get a security system, fund the police or defund the police, follow whatever fad the world tosses out, we're told you do this and you will be safe. None of these things can ultimately make us safe. Part of living in this fallen world is that we are always on the razor's edge of death and destruction. Plague could arise tomorrow, or the bombs could fly, or the fires could spread, or the tanks could roll, or the earthquakes, or the storms, or any other natural disasters could come, and we would be done. All that boastful, prideful, self-sufficient man could do is watch in despair and horror. There is a safety we long for. 
that we yearn for. But as long as we live in this world of sin and death and lies and smooth talkers, safety is not guaranteed. But eventually Christ is going to return and all things will be put right. The ultimate safety we seek is only found in Christ, the hope in the resurrection and the eternal life that we will one day share with him. This hope lets us live with confidence in this present evil age, even as we face all of these dangers around us. We do not have to despair. We do not have to be afraid. We can come to Christ, weak and heavy laden as we are, and he will give us rest. And we can long for that day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes and fully and finally comfort his people. But as we rest in him, we also work to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even in the face of ever-rising resistance, even as this world is passing away we are being fitted for eternal glory. Perhaps tonight you hear of this hope in Christ for the first time, that Christ died to save sinners and to give them hope for eternal rest. If that is you, the call of the gospel is to repent and believe in Christ and trust in him for forgiveness of sins and for this eternal life and eternal hope. Perhaps you come here tonight like David, You've been beset by evil and the trials of this life. You're surrounded by wicked and boastful people doing evil things to you. Have the confidence that Christ is for you. He is your shelter and your protection. And even if things aren't set right in this life, ultimately all will be set right. Because if you are in Christ, you have the hope of glory. And that makes the things of this earth grow strangely dim. So trust in Christ and rest assured in Him, for in Him and Him alone is true safety. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for these words that You've given us, that You inspired through Your servant David so long ago, and yet they still ring true for us. I thank You that in you and in you alone we have the confidence that we can be placed into the safety for which we long because of what Christ has done for us. And so even though we face a world of evil, of opposition, of lying, and of all the various evils that it has to throw at us, we can do so with hope and confidence knowing that ultimately you will set all things right and that ultimately we are safe with you. I pray that all here gathered tonight would have the hope that comes in Christ and be faithful to proclaim this hope to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.